Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Niklas Sarvos, and next to me is my friend, Eddie Palmgren. How are you today, Eddie? I'm great. It's really a fairy tale day here in Stockholm. Minus 15 degrees, snow everywhere, and the sun is about to set, uh, although it's just 2 p.m. But I'm really excited because today we will talk with Chris Mayer, co-founder and portfolio manager at Woodlock House Family Capital and the author of uh, multiple books. Uh, The one he's most famous for is probably the one we will discuss today, 100 Baggers, which is a study of the best performing US stocks that each for every $10,000 invested have returned $1 million and often more. And the publisher spent $50,000 just to get the data. Uh, which spans from 1962 to 2014, and it resulted in 365 stocks that returned a hundredfold or more. And the largest inspiration for Chris to write the book was Thomas Phelps' book 100 to 1 in the Stock Market from 1972. So why have we chosen the book from Chris Mayer? Well, isn't it everybody's dream to find a stock that returns 100 times your money? <laughs> Sounds too good to be true almost. Yeah, it does. Uh, 100 Baggage is an important book for many reasons, but maybe most importantly to raise awareness of the astonishing return investors can gain from buying great companies and holding on for the long term. Patience is an attribute that seems to be more important for every year that goes by, which is highly emphasized in this book. Uh, there is a quote in the book which I like a lot and which also points to the benefit of a buy-and-hold approach. Uh, And it goes, forget about the trading and use the time you would have spent monitoring the trade with your family. Good advice indeed. And the book is full of success stories from both business and investing. And uh, for those who have read William Thorndike's The Outsiders, it shares many similarities with that one. And also our first guest of the podcast, Sean Eddings, the uh, the two books on intelligence fanatics that he wrote together with Ian Castle uh, are similar. So how does the 100 Baggers fit with the Red Eye quality rating, Niklas? So 100 Baggers is focused on finding companies with quality attributes. And I would say that is exactly what the Red Eye rating is about. We rate the companies in terms of the quality of the people, the business and the financials. And I would argue that the method shares many similarities with the one outlined by Chris. The book 100 Baggers, Stocks That Return 100 to 1 and How to Find Them was published in 2015. And to help us increase our understanding of these magical stocks, we are truly grateful to have the author on the show today. Here comes our conversation with Chris Mayer. Hello, Chris, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thank you for having me on. Good to be here. Where are you today? I am in Gaithersburg, Maryland, near Washington, D.C., in my home office. Nice. I see a lot of uh, great books behind you. Yeah, it's uh, my library here. It's uh, got my investment books over here, philosophy books, a bunch of things. Cool. And um, one of the books that we wanted to talk about today is the book you wrote on 100 baggers. And uh, we think it's a fascinating topic because it can really create life-changing wealth to achieve one of those hundredfold returns. So can you start out with telling us your favorite uh, or one of them? Hundred bagger stories. Well, you know, I I have a I like a lot of them. I don't know that I have a favorite, but I guess one that comes to mind uh, because it did it so quickly and because it was in the numbers and that you could have seen it seen it developing was Monster Beverage, and that's a case study that I, I cover in the book. 
And so Monster Beverage became a 100-bagger within 10 years. And in that 10 years, it kind of packed all the lessons. <laughs> it was, uh, it had a number of severe drawdowns. Uh, I think there were a couple of months where it fell, you know, 20 or 30%, maybe even 40% in a single month. So you think about one of the lessons that comes out of uh, the 100-bagger study is how the volatility involved, volatility and also long stretches where stocks don't go anywhere. For Monster, it was you had some severe pullbacks along the way. But one reason I really like it is, and I talk about this in the book, is that you could just see it in the numbers you had a few years there, years where you could have bought it at any price it was trading at in those three or four years and still made a hundred times your money. And you could have seen rising sales was growing sales at a very high clip, uh, high gross margin, high profitability, high returns on capital. And so it was all there in front of you. It's all you had to, you know, you do is buy and hold on to it. Um, but it was also a little controversial. As I mentioned in the case study, there was a very, compelling and smart sounding short report written about it early on, which would, could have scared you out. Um, so yeah, that's one of my favorites for those reasons. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. You mentioned also that there are two typical ways for a stock to become a, a hundred bagger where, where one, one way is far riskier than the other. Can you, can you explain that? Well, you may be referring in the book, I talk about how there are a number of stocks that I sort of weeded out of the study. So these were ones that uh, are like junior minor stocks that are trading for, you know, 12 cents, and then they hit some sort of deposit and go up 100-fold, or, or some biotech, you know, tiny biotech that makes a discovery and goes up 100-fold. So I, I weeded those out of the study because what I was looking for was stocks that we could somehow predict or that you could see like those are really unpredictable wild outcomes that you would never you know never be able to figure out ahead of time but if you found uh, you know a mcdonald's in the early early goings or a starbucks you know some of these things they were pretty good business they were good businesses right from the start and they had a lot of the handles or clues that i talk about in the book so you have a shot for you know maybe maybe discovering it. So that's why, uh, you know, I divided it up into two and I was much more interested in the ones that had financial attributes that an analyst might be able to look at and think about and, and project into the future. And you also discuss about the, the twin engines needed to create a hundred bagger. Yeah. The twin engines are very helpful. Um, they can do, so the twin engines, one is, you just have a lot of growth. So if you have, uh, you know, a company that's compounding sales at 20% a year, that's, that's a nice <laughs> a tailwind, obviously. But combined, if, you're, if you have a stock that's trading at, say, you know, 15 times earnings when you get involved, and 10 years later, after 10 years of 20% growth, it also now is trading at 45 times earnings. Obviously, that can do a lot of, a lot of work for you and get you to that 100-bagger status quicker. And so many of those 100 baggers had some sort of tailwind like that. And they, they were amazing companies. I mean, there have been times when you, you were able to get them at very low multiples of earnings and cash flow because of cyclical bear markets or something like that. Uh, so that makes your work easier if you can find those. Um, 
you don't need you don't need necessarily to have both twin engines. You you have stocks, plenty of examples of stocks that were seemed expensive the whole time. You know, they just grew and grew and grew and got there. But uh, the twin engines is kind of a neat little concept to keep in mind that you can get there partly with the multiple expansion helping you along the way. A task that is much more difficult in today's market. <laughs> and another person who has looked at some of the most successful businesses is uh, Sean Iddings, our first guest on the podcast. And he he talks about the importance of building your pattern recognition to be able to identify these special companies. So so we're curious, how much has uh, writing the book helped you to become a, a better investor? Well, I like to think it's it's made me a much better investor. And it it's interesting because it didn't happen right away. So I did the study and wrote the book. And it certainly had an impact on how I think about things. So I began to appreciate much more the importance of reinvestment. That's what I always tell people is that it's not just finding something that's highly profitable or has great margins, great returns, but also that has the ability to then take those cash flows, reinvest it, get that return again, and continue to do it again and again and again. That's where you really get powerful compounding effects. And uh, the study really made me appreciate that and make that important, more important part of what I do. But I still sort of clung to what you might call a more valuation-centric approach for years afterwards. So even now, even me, you know, writing the book and doing that study, it took a while for it to really sink in and change me for good. And uh, over the years, as I started to put more and more of the things I write about in the book in practice, I started to see that that really was the way I wanted to go. And uh, I started to become just much more focused on that. I would say before, I was more of an investor who, like a lot of investors, they have different buckets and different or different arrows in their quiver. You know, they do some special situations. They might do a have a deep value over here. They've got their growth names. But as time has elapsed, I'm just much more focused now on just these. And that's how I built Woodlock House now is to focus on just finding you know, 10 of these kinds of names that I can sit with and, and run. That's great. And I think I think many investors refer to you as the, I mean, the hundred bagger expert now. But can you can you describe a bit more on your evolution as an investor? I mean, I having having done some reading about you, I read that you have uh, I mean, you, you studied the monetary history, for example, before. Um, but that's something I mean, when you when you when I read this book, you um, you focus more on on the company fundamentals, of course. So can you describe that a bit? Yeah, that's a good Good question. Good point. Because, like you know, every investor sort of goes through an evolution, and and I don't know why. For me, in particular, maybe because I was so inherently curious, I, I ran the gamut, did everything. I mean, when I I started out, uh, well, the first time I got interested in investing was when I started to learn and read more about Warren Buffett, and then that led me led me naturally to his teacher. Benjamin Graham. And so you kind of, you know, I kind of came into the world from that approach, but then I read lots of other things. I read Peter Lynch's books and they were a big influence. And early on, I mean, I read everything, macro books, trading books, you know, books on technical analysis and charting and just kind of exploring and experimenting with that whole world. Um, so it took, it took some time, you know, I would say then I sort of settled in with kind of more deep value approach for a while. I know Marty Whitman was another investor who was an 
important influence early on. And uh, yeah, and in the beginning, I did also pay attention, a lot more attention to macro, talking about monetary policy, the economy, and very different than the way I, I would do it now. Um, but then over time, I graduated more and more towards focusing more on just companies. And uh, that's where I am today. So everyone has their different paths and um, where they settle in. And part of it's temperament and your own experiences. But um, yeah, for me, the appeal of the this 100-bagger style approach, I like the, the simplicity of it. And it takes a lot of the extraneous noise that distracts investors out of, out of the process. That's really, really interesting. And um, if we if we then go in a bit more on the to the to, to the hundred bagger um, aspects um, and the characteristics of the hundred baggers you have studied, um, I want to to mention just that at Red Eye, where I work as an equity analyst, uh, we have a rating model where we rate companies based on three pillars: so people, business, and financials. And we have a, a set of questions in each category. Um, and uh, I want to start with people, and you seem to like owner-operators, and I'm curious to know your explanations for why owner-operators create more value than managers without skin in the game, so to speak. Yeah. As I've gone along, one of the things I've learned is that investing is a people business, just like business in general is people business, and they're very, very important. And I think, you know, I had, I had a background in banking and when you're when you're a credit credit analyst and then you're a loan officer at a bank lending to middle market companies in the area I was taught that the, the character of the people is the most important thing and so I always thought that was an interesting lesson but you know older and wiser bankers would tell me that even if you love the business and you have great collateral if you don't trust the people don't do the deal because they'll always find a way to kind of screw you in the end. <laughs> and so we spent a lot of time kind of, uh, you know, getting to know the people. And so that kind of carried over to investing. And then I remember I read uh, Marty Sosnoff's books, two books in particular. One is called Humble on Wall Street. And another one is called Silent Investor, Silent Loser. And he was big on this idea of investing with people who have skin in the game for that same reason. You know, hey, you have somebody who's they're an investor alongside you, their interests are aligned. And so hopefully, in theory, they will make better decisions than someone who is not aligned in that way. So uh, I really liked that idea. I liked the way he talked about it. And then I started to read and do more research on it. And it turns out there's a pretty decent body of academic research that covers this as well. So there's studies that will show... If the CEO owns 10% of the stock, how he outperforms his peers over a certain amount of time, he or she. Um, if the if there's a family involved, there's lots of research that shows how family-owned companies outperform their peers over time. So I started to collect these kinds of, of studies. And um, so that's, uh, that's how that developed. And of course, there's always exceptions, right? There's always owner-operators who... Uh, take advantage of their minority shareholders. And those are ones you certainly want to try to avoid. And then culturally, I'm not sure it necessarily always translates because I always get the question. Somebody will say, well, you know, in 
if you go look throughout Asia and China, there's lots of companies where insiders own a whole lot of the shares. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're outperforming because in some ways they think about it differently. And it's more their own piggy bank, right? More of their own piggy bank, exactly. So you have to be careful. I put that caveat in there as well, that it may not uh, translate across across cultures. Um, but uh, it works pretty well in the U.S. And, and it's also, you know, an underappreciated aspect of it is psychological aspect, which is when you're invested with someone like that, when times get tough, when the market tests you as it inevitably will, you sleep better at night knowing that you've got guys at the helm, guys and gals at the helm who are going to make those decisions that you already trust and, and know and, and who are invested alongside you. So that's a big, big part of it as well. And do you have a quantitative measure for what you define as an owner? Yeah, people love, love to ask me that question. Like, is there a magic number? You know, <laughs> is it 10% or 5%, 15%, whatever? I would say not really, because sometimes a guy, you might have a CEO owns 5% of the stock, but that might be all of that person's net worth. Um, and in which case, you know, pretty significant. Or you might have a CEO owns fifteen percent, but is this? But it's the smallest holding that CEO has, and so maybe it's not so important. Yeah. So context is important. Yeah, we have the same in our rating model. We have five percent threshold, I think, or if they have most of their own money in the stock. Yeah, especially because someone's younger and they or started the company and kind of went up. There's no reason, or there was no way for them to accumulate a great deal of wealth. So that that context is important. And uh, and incentives. So sometimes, uh, you know, incentive schemes are generally pretty boring. Most companies have similar comp schemes. Every once in a while, you come across something that's interesting. It maybe has a unusual incentive system tied around some return measure that you know is appealing to you as an investor, or really ties them in in some way. So you know, incentives. Are important too. Do you have an example of such incentive that raises your curiosity? Well, you know, we talk about uh, we talked about a little bit before the podcast that these a number of Swedish companies, these serial acquirers, and you know, one of the things that fascinates me about those companies is their focus on return on capital employed, and that permeates their organizations. So their incentives and the managers are focused around that a return metric. That's interesting. You know, that's, that's what you would want. It's not a usual sale getting necessarily just compensated on increasing sales and profits. And, but they're thinking about return on capital. So sort of really that's the magic of creating value as an investor. Yeah. And that ties into capital allocation, which is a very important decision and something we have discussed with several of our guests here in the podcast. So what are your thoughts on, on how to evaluate those decisions? Yeah, capital allocation is critical. Uh, and there's always, there's that Warren Buffett quote where he says the CEO over 10 years, uh, you know, deciding where 10% of the profits goes eventually winds up deciding what 60, where 60% of the capital goes or something like that. Um, so over time, and capital allocation decisions become huge. So how do you evaluate it? Well, uh, number one, you've got track record. So you can think about it. When you think about it, there's only so many things you can really do. You know, you can either 
buy other companies when it's cash. You either pay it out to shareholders in some way, you buy back stock, you pay back debt, or you just let it sit in cash. Those are kind of your, it's your menu. So how do they do it? I mean, do they, and does the management team pay out a bunch of dividends? You know, that's a, and do they do it regardless? This is very prevalent, but it's a little unfortunate that companies have these dividend policies that they just stick to regardless uh, versus making a decision you know, do they have way better ways to invest it or not? It's this kind of automatic payout. And that's, a, um, but, you know, sometimes you can't be too critical of a company for that if it's so widespread. But ideally, you'd like to have a company that's more thoughtful about which of those five areas of capital deployment they, you know, they, they, they go after, they think about. So, yeah, how do you value track records? Number one, if you see, you know, paying for high priced acquisitions, if you see, you know, buybacks that seem to be done at irrational times when the stock's doing when business is well, they're buying back, and then suddenly when things go badly, they they stop. Um, the footprint on acquisitions is another important one to see the track record of that. So capital allocation is really important. Yeah, and also to know who is making the decision. Who's making decisions? Yes. Who's involved in what? The, we have discussed, discussed incentives and capital allocation. Um, what do you look for in terms of culture in a business? Yeah, culture is another thing that's really important that I've come to appreciate more as I get older. And uh, I think the culture I look for is, because this become part of my regular due diligence on a company, my regular questions is to, to try to see what turnover looks like uh, certain certain levels on the theory that a company that has lots of employees that stay for a long time is probably a good place to work. Uh, do they promote from within? You know, I like to see management teams and, and where the people have been with the business a long time. They've been promoted within. They're now running substantial divisions within the company. Um, so a culture of, that kind of culture is good. A culture of employee ownership is is nice. Um, Brown and Brown is an insurance broker I have where they the employees own almost as much stock as the Brown family. And so that's kind of a, a nice thing. Uh, Domino's Pizza is kind of an interesting case study in this too because if you look at a lot of their franchisees, they're almost all drivers and people who work for the business for a long time. So there's an interesting culture there. You know, they just don't take you. If you just come in off the street wanting to run a Domino's, own a Domino's franchise, you got a you got a hard road to go. You know, they don't typically do that. So those are little cultural markers. You know, think about which is really focusing on employees turnover, kind of how they treat people, and those are kind of the, those are the cultural markers to look for. It's a tough question because it involves also talking to people who used to work there. Competitors can sometimes give you a good sense. Do you do you uh, also look at like employee employee service and uh, maybe Glassdoor or? I know some people, investors of mine, friends of mine, who use that. I I don't typically do that. It's not part of my general uh, process, but perhaps I should. I mean, I've been heard. I've heard people tell me that it's that it can be good at the extremes. You know, so a lot of times comments on their people complaining or whatever but if you're overwhelmingly on one side or the other it might be it might give you an insight so you're trying to talk with people in the company who has worked there or worked there 
Yes, I try to. And in fact, um, a lot of times I'll have to say that some of my better conversations have been with people who used to work there or work there now versus people in the, in the executive suite because, you know, the CFO and CEO, they talk to investors. They know what we want here. But uh, like I'm invested in Copart and if I go and talk to somebody who runs a Copart yard, you get a different perspective. You know, you get to see how things really work on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. What are the real daily pressures of the business? What works well, what doesn't? It can be really insightful. My next question was, how, how do you get hold of these people? But of course, it's easier in the businesses where they have a physical store or so you can visit. But otherwise, it can be tricky to get hold of them. Yeah, it can be tricky to um, find employees. You're right. If like on a co-part, they have physical locations, you can. it's a little easier. But um, yeah, I mean, there are other other ways. You know, there are expert networks that will help, help you track down people. Um, LinkedIn is pretty good, I think. Yeah, LinkedIn. There's there ways. If we take a more practical example, then maybe you, you have you've found a company that you that you're interested that has piqued your interest, and uh, um, you get the chance to talk to to the management team. But you only have the chance to ask one single question. What would that be? Oh, that's a good one. Well, I think I would focus somehow on competition and because I'm thinking about all the questions that I typically ask management teams and of course it varies by business and depending on the type of business there's different things that I might try to learn from them that I can't necessarily get so easily just by reading filings and whatnot but I always like to ask a question about competition so you know what uh what separates them from their competition, something along those lines. And if you get kind of a pat answer, you know, that's kind of a negative. Hopefully you'll get a thoughtful answer about what exactly drives that business. And sometimes, you know, there are they have a definite good understanding of what makes them different. That would be a big plus. And a red flag would be if they say that they have no competition, I guess. A red flag would be if they say something like, what you would expect to hear. Oh, you know, we have great people and great service and just kind of buzzwordy things rather than something tangible by saying, well, you know, like a copart could say, well, we've got yards that we've built up over a couple of decades and we've got them in locations that are close to our customers. And it's very hard for our competitors to replicate that, you know, or if it's uh Yeah, so something like that, a more thoughtful answer. So before we move into the business side of things a bit more, I mean, of course, we we did that when you mentioned the the competitive side. And uh, uh, I just want to to let you give us an example of a company that checks all the boxes from a people standpoint. You know, any of my companies I have now would be a good example. So it's just a matter of which one I feel like talking about. I mean, I, you know, I mentioned Brown and Brown. I think that's a, that's a good example. Uh, the CEO is, uh, actually he's a third generation, which is unusual to have the family's skills go down that far, but he's an excellent CEO. I mentioned, uh, you know, I talk to the CFO every once in a while. I think, uh, he's a, thoughtful guy as well when you ask him questions about the business you don't get the usual you don't get pat 
buzzwordy answers. I think they've, they've focused on the things that are important. They think like business people. You, you talk to them, they'll talk about free cash flow. They, you know, they talk about the things we want to hear them talk about. And I mentioned them earlier as far as people goes also because they have that culture of employees and employees are a significant shareholder in the business. And uh, they encourage that as well. They have a stock plan where they allow employees to buy stock at like a 10% discount or something like that. And that's been a very good thing for share, for them to do over the long term. It's one of those companies too you go to and some people have gotten very wealthy over time working there. And that's good. And they're owners, you know, they should be. So, um, you know, that's one example. Um, I mentioned Copart. That's another good example because it was a founder-led company. Willis Johnson founded it. Jay Adair is the CEO. And he's another good example because he he came up from the business when he worked there as a teenager. And now he's running the show. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of good examples like that. Seems like you have material for a follow-up follow up on the on the hundred baggers already. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, if I were to write it, I, I would think I would write it differently. I certainly have some different examples, and there would be some things I'd emphasize more than I did in the book. And the ones we're talking about already would be the ones I'd emphasize more: the people, culture. You never stop learning, so you always, you know, you always pick up new things. Exactly. So moving on to the business side, uh, which uh, business models do you believe will be the most successful in the next 50 years? Next 50? Yeah. <laughs> to put it easy. Well, I think this a lot of the same models will be that are successful now will be successful then. So big picture models like franchise franchise businesses, royalties, those kinds of structures are, won't go away. Network effects especially built around software. Those won't go away. Uh, so that's a big picture sense. And one part of uh, the hundred bagger story is, of course, growth. And you mention it in the book. And you need it in all dimensions: its sales, its margin, and, and valuation. So when you analyze companies, how do you weigh these different factors in terms of growth? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Well, let's see. I think um, I like to have at least kind of double digit sales growth. I think a lot of it flows from that. It's hard to find any kind of hundred bagger where you weren't growing at least something like that. Uh, now there's operating leverage and so yes, so cash flow can grow faster. Uh, but you still need to start with that top line growth. And plus, that's also an indication of other good things that are going on with the business. Uh, business that's growing like that. Uh, 20% a year is probably a business has something special and it's doing something that uh, warrants some investigation. And if they can do it for a long period of time, that, that does a lot of work for you. So I think I would start with that. And then secondly, look, look, secondarily, look at the margins and, and cash flow and how that tracks it. I, ideally, you'd have it growing a little faster. You need to get a little leverage in there, a little operating leverage or higher margin growth. Uh, and then you mentioned valuation in there. I mean, valuation is important as well, of course. One thing that I've been uh, telling people and writing about more recently, I, I think I put this out on my one of my more recent blogs, is that uh, it's important to get the business right 
more important to get the business right than the valuation right. And it took me a long time to learn that lesson. Where before it being very valuation focused, because that seems more certain, easy. You, know, you buy something, book value, you buy something, whatever. But if you get the business right and you really have a, a business that invests, uh, that earns a high return on capital, has the ability to reinvest that at a high rate, of time, uh, a high rate and can do it again and again and again, then that's going to bail you out if you, you know, overpay a bit. Versus if you're very precise and you got the valuation right, but the business, you know, you got that wrong. And so the valuation is not really going to help you <laughs> over the long run. Maybe, maybe you, if you get out quick, you, do, you don't lose as much as you thought or whatever. But yeah, I think the business first, valuation second is what I like to say. So do you look at, for growth, do you look at some structural growth themes or are you like 100% bottom up when you check for companies? A uh, combination. Um, you, 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 I prefer to have the whole industry kind of growing. You know, it's nice to have a, a business that's growing a lot faster than its peers. But if the overall industry is shrinking or not growing much, then it's going to hit a ceiling pretty quick. So ideally, you want to have as open-ended growth possibilities as possible. And there's a lot about talks about moats, and we had uh, discussions here in the podcast as well with Brilliant Heather Brilliant, for example, who wrote a moats book. Uh, but do you think it's becoming like overrated that everyone is looking at moats? No, I don't think it's overrated. I think it depends on your investment approach. If you're uh, uh, if you want to be a, a long-term investor, you want to hold on to a business for a long time, then it's absolutely critical that you own something that has some sort of competitive advantage. You want to call it a moat, call it whatever you want to call it. But basically what you're looking for is if you're investing in a business earning high return on capital, then that is like a honeypot. For, uh, why wouldn't other people try to do the same thing? You know, you're going to have competitors try to replicate it. And the natural sort of flow of capitalistic markets is that those high margins and high returns get eroded away over time. So you have to figure out a reason why that's not going to happen in this case. And that gets to moats. You know, I mentioned um, Copart before. They have a, a moat that is more of a physical moat. So it's a good example to use because it's easier to understand. You know, they have these huge yards where they have all thousands of cars and uh, they've, they've been around a long time. It's, it's very, very difficult to find that kind of land. So they've got, you know, hundreds of these things all over the country and uh, you can see how that uh, that's a competitive edge. So it's very, very difficult to compete with them to require an enormous amount of capital. And even if you had it, you wouldn't necessarily be able to get all the yards they do. And, and that's why that industry has kind of evolved into an oligopoly between Copart and insurance auto auctions. So that's a, that's a good example. But when you look at the financials of the last five years, 10 years, 15 years, you can see that high return on capital persists and even kind of grow as this, as scale takes in, as scale comes in. And you can feel pretty confident that it's, it's almost impossible for a competitor to come in and, and arbitrage that away or take that away in some, in some way. So, um, yeah, I think it's critical. There are lots of different ways to have moats. I think sometimes I don't think investors make the mistake, you know, that it's too popular, people looking for moats, but I think people might focus too narrowly on what makes a moat. And uh, I've written about this as well. One of my blog posts is called Invisible Moats. 
And uh, that's a moat where you have this built really around the culture. And the example I used in that was ODFL, Old Dominion Freight. It's a great, a great company. It's a trucking company. So you would think, you know, there's no way to build a competitive advantage in that business. But if you study that business, you find that they've generated high returns on capital for a long time, exceeding the industry, exceeding their peers. And uh, they continue to outperform and they have a great culture there. They, it's a family owned business. Family owns a decent percent of the stock. The, uh, the employees are, you know, aligned. There's a lot of employee ownership at that company, so they've got something special that they've been able to replicate. And so, even in an industry that otherwise seems hard to defend a high return capital, they've done it. So I think you know you look at the financials. So you know, sometimes companies claim they have a competitive advantage, but then you look at the financials and you're like, well, where is it? You know, it's not translating necessarily into better margins or better returns on capital. So I think it starts with that. You know, if you have a company that has higher returns on capital, then you reverse engineer, well, why are they able to sustain it? And if you do that, you'll find interesting ways that companies can create advantages. So we talked about growth, we talked about moats, um, and in your study of hunterbaggers, is there any other business characteristics, characteristics like size, industry, uh, markets, or so on, that you have found as a common pattern? Well, yeah, size. I mean, to, to the obvious degree, you you want to stay on the smaller spectrum. I mean, you're not going to buy Apple today and expect to go up a hundredfold. So, uh, in the book, I, I put the limit pretty low. I think that might be something I change a little. I think I had 300 million was the kind of where you want to stay. I, And I think you can get quite a bit bigger than that. Um, so the size obviously is a factor. Industry is an interesting one because one of the things that came out of the study is that it doesn't seem to be uh, that important. So when I started it, I suspected that tech would be a big, you know, dominant piece of the of the study, but it really isn't. I mean, if you look at the hundred uh, baggers that are in the study and it's in the index of the book, they come from all over. There's you know, energy companies, consumer product companies. So I don't think industry affiliation is something you should worry too much about. The other characteristics we talk about outweigh that. So, uh, yeah, those are, those are a couple that come to mind, but we've hit the most important ones, in my opinion. One specific type of company you emphasize in the book is holding companies, and I think you own a few of those. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think those are, I mean, especially a fertile hunting ground? Well, I think one really good reason is because, you know, we talked earlier about the importance of capital allocation. So for a uh, holding company, it's a good holding company, it's all about capital allocation. That's the kind of the theory of why it exists is it to be able to take cash flows from a variety of businesses that it's holding and redeploy them in a you know in a high return area and keep keep that focus. So a really good holding company has the ability to do that. And uh, so that's why they've always appealed to me is and there are a number of good holding companies. Obviously, Berkshire was is one kind of holding company, but it's not the only kind of holding company. You know, there's also the Lifcos of the world, like you have in Sweden. It's also a holding company, and that structure can work really well if you have a culture at the top that focuses on return on capital and those sorts of considerations. 
So yeah, I, li- I like that structure. That's that's taking you all the way to Sweden. Yeah, take me all around the world. <laughs> yeah, um, but Sweden is a bit uh, interesting in that aspect because we have a lot of uh, holding companies. Yes, there is both the I mean the typical like investment trust. Uh, we call them investment bolag, um, but there are also those that we um, that are more like serial acquirers that we that we call them. Um, is there any of those groups that you are more interested in, and why? Yeah, I like I like a number of them. So uh, yeah, I, I did some work on AdTech and Lagerkrans, and the one I own is Lifco. That's interesting. Yeah, Carl Carl Benet is the is the yeah. founder there, and and you mentioned Lagerkrans and AdTech, and th- those were both uh, spin-offs from uh, Bergman and Beving. Yeah, and uh, I mean to to. Um, I mean, to a short history of that is what you can what you can see there is that uh, they have had a strategy that when they have acquired like a set of companies, I, I don't know if there is a specific level, but like more than 100, 150 companies, then they spin off um, into into a new one, and you could also see that the the managers in those companies move uh, between the companies a lot. So you have like mm-hmm. a a VP mo- moving over to the CEO spot in in one of the other companies. Yes, so um, I, I love those companies because again they also have this focus. I mean, they talk they, they, this focus on return on capital. So it's in all their letters. They talk about it. They publish it. You know, they build incentives around that, and uh, so I love that. That's and they've worked so well for so long. You just, they're, they're just compound, compound, compound. So. Yeah, well, I, I had to choose one. I chose Lifco, and uh, I mean, I've spoken with uh, people who've worked there, run divisions for them. Uh, I talked to the CEO. I think Pear is a very thoughtful guy and definitely gets it. And I came away from that conversation feeling very confident that uh, you know he knows what it's all about. And the other nice thing is he's relatively young; he's still in his forties. That's another thing. You know, a lot of times we get these capital allocators after they've already had 30-year runs and everybody celebrates them. So this it's it's nice to be able to find one that is uh, you know, still should have many, many years of compounding ahead. So um yeah, I like the structures that you know, they they do smart things. They're they don't use a lot of leverage, financial leverage. They have a very well defined set of opportunities and they kind of stick with that because in the u.s there's also uh, if you say the word roll up <laughs> to people they probably shy away because there's been lots of examples of roll-ups that haven't worked over here and one of the differences is is uh, the roll-ups use a lot of debt typically and they're just looking to just gobble up and you know and they combine lots of sales and then they cut expenses it's not the same or a lot of the Swedish ones are more about keeping the decentralized structure and building businesses. And so that works very well. And, and we have some of those over here, like a Danaher would be another example of companies very successful along those lines. In Canada, of course, you have Constellation Software would be a company that's kept that decentralized structure and has been able to acquire hundreds of businesses over time very successfully. So that that's probably a hurdle a lot of investors still have to get over. Is uh, they shy away from companies that are acquisitive, 
but there are very different kinds of acquirers. There are acquirers that do big splashy deals uh, that use a lot of leverage and can get into trouble versus a, a patient, thoughtful owner of businesses like Lifco. You think it's more about like, I was going to say, I mean, to compare like defensive acquisitions and offensive acquisitions, but then I thought about Facebook and then it just yeah fell down. <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> yeah i think i think uh i think it's also important to have it to be um kind of steady acquisitions you know it's almost becomes part of the core competency of what they do and it's just it's just something they just they do this choir and it's it's consistent and they have a pipeline and they're going through names and uh i don't like it so much when it's really patchy you know the they try to do bigger deals and uh, also it's important for the compounding. I mean, we talked before about reinvestment. So if you have a holding company that will decide to sit out a year, you know, that, that affects that compounding. Yeah, I think one hurdle that, that, it, that I hear investors mention is that, I mean, many of those Swedish acquirers that you mentioned, they can buy companies for like um, six times uh, earnings or something like that. And right. they have done that for such a long time. But when will it end? Yeah, that's the question. Every investor is gonna, who looks in this space is going to spend some time figuring that out. I am comfortable that, uh, say, like Alifco has plenty of room. Number one is uh, some of them are still pretty small, so that, you know they got a lot of room. But also the ones that can go and have proven that they can do this across borders is, is really important. So the ones that can acquire all through Western Europe and you, you know, and even have North American holdings, those, those are ones that are, I think have a lot more runway. And then, um, you know, the opportunities are always evolving. So we have a certain opportunity set of companies today, but you don't know what it'll look like 10 years from now. There might be companies today that are very small, but then Five ten years, they're going to be right in that sweet spot for acquisitions. So the population, uh, that mix, is always shifting around as well. But there are there are still thousands and thousands and thousands of little companies doing things that are ripe to be purchased at some point. And there's a natural life cycle. Sometimes you know the owners they get to a certain point in their life and they're done with it. There's lots of reasons. But so far, I think of those kinds of companies that uh, have lots of room. The other thing is kind of to explore is the the uh address, you know the total addressable market what's what's in there in their space and it's better to have a holding company that can add new verticals that can explore and get into new spaces so maybe if they run out of room here they can still have explore other areas so you know you look at a berkshire and what they've invested in over their long over their long life you look at lifco the different breadth of companies they've acquired so far Versus a company that's stuck in a very small niche where they may more quickly hit that ceiling. Optionality. Yeah. But I, I think also from from the if we just uh, stay at the Swedish side, I think it goes both ways a bit. I mean, there are a few examples in Sweden which has uh, been quite niched and they have gro- uh, managed to grow a lot. Anyway, we have Nibe, for example, with, a, I would say, fanatic CEO in Hjart-Erik Lindqvist. And uh, I mean, Nibe is... More of a more than a 200 bagger the last 25 years. Um, Asabloy is another example in the lock industry. Um, 
But then, as, as you mentioned, there are a lot of acquirers that are, I mean, quite broad in what they buy. Uh, they just want to buy quality companies, often like um, that they are in specific niches where they are in, uh, I mean, we, we interviewed the, the, the team who, who wrote the um, Moat Matters uh, book, The Morning Star. Uh, yeah, Pat Dorsey. Yeah, exactly. Not Pat, we didn't interview Pat Dorsey, but... Heather Brilliant. Episode five. Oh, okay. And they have a concept called efficient scale, where you have a, a market leader in a really niche industry, which can defend that for the long term. And, and I think uh, many of these serial acquirers focus on that. Yeah, it's always neat when you find a business that's able to take something that seems otherwise pretty humble, like HVIC or pest control, like a Rollins, and you know, and they make it into the, a fantastic business over a long period of time. Let's shift focus a bit from the business and and to the investor. Um, hunting for hundred baggers is a big challenge that I think requires a lot of curiosity. So where do you start? Yeah, I think you have to you have to like the hunt. You have to enjoy learning about businesses. You have to enjoy reading. And uh, I, you know, where to start? I'd say start with what interests you. You know. It's tough to, uh, to research a company that you don't like or you're bored with. So, uh, and do you have yeah, a specific I'm, process? I mean, for how to go about it? You know, because I've been in the business a long time. I mean, I have a kind of an inventory of names I like and I have a watch list of companies. But uh, so I, I don't, uh, if you were starting from scratch, I don't know what I would do. I mean, there's, you could, you know, there's screens and other things. I mean, uh, but for me, no, I mean, there's not really a systematic way that I go about looking for them. It's, I read a lot. I, um, like I say, I already, I have kind of a, I talk to a lot of other investors, uh, you know, everything from Twitter to, I, I am, uh, I'm not particularly picky about where the source of an idea comes from. I just keep the antennas out and, and listen carefully. I guess you have worked up your pattern recognition well. Yeah, I guess that's it. And in the book you bring up Sosnov's Law. So can you explain a bit what that is? Sosnov's Law is uh, kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I think there's some definite truth to it. It says that the returns on investment vary inversely with the thickness of the research file. <laughs> so in other words, if you the more time you spend on a name, probably your return on that name's not going to be as good. I guess it's a way, too, of saying that the best ideas really kind of pop out at you. And it's like, wow, this is exceptional. And if you have to you know, really do a tremendous amount of work to understand something and you just find yourself spending a lot of time on a name, then perhaps that your return will be lower. That's Sosnoff's law. And that's something that he found in his experience. He was a money manager for more than 50 years. And we touched upon valuation already and... It's, of course, a vital part of the equation for any investor. So what do you think is the most common problem with how investors in general behave and value stocks today? I think the most common problem is people use a multiple uh, without considering the quality of the investment. It sounds simple, but you see this all the time. People will say X stocks trading for 5% free cash flow yield better than this one, which is 4, but or this one has a P. 29, this one has a P of 20, and 
say one is cheaper than the other, but then they ignore the whole return on capital reinvestment, the, you know, the whole engine that makes the investment go. So if I were to tell people something along that those lines, I'd say, you know, you have to, you have to imagine valuation is on a scale and the market generally sorts them out right over the long term. The companies that have higher returns on capital generally have higher multiples than those that don't, to be very simple about it. And, uh, to find it, find a deal is to find something that's off that off that line. So maybe a company that does return high return on capital is trading at an unusually low multiple uh, might be an opportunity. So you have to take into account that piece. If we go into um, portfolio construction, um, you have mentioned that you that you like to have like ten to twelve stocks in your portfolio, uh, um, and uh, having read the Bessenbinder study. Um, that that study concludes with that uh, only like four percent of of companies beat T bills. So how do you reconcile the these two, or, or should you reconcile these two? Yeah, I love the I love the Besson Binder study. Um, well, I mean, I think there's no right answer necessarily to how many names you should have. It's I think it's a lot personal preference and what you have the bandwidth for and how much you like to get you know your names obviously if you have 40 names it's a lot more difficult to really know those businesses if you just have 10 <laughs> so but it doesn't necessarily mean that your returns are going to be better there's a lot of research that shows concentration delivers better returns than than not uh but i think what you do how you reconcile them is it kind of goes back a little bit to what we were talking about with the hundred bagger study. I mean, we, we know what drives outperformance over a long period of time. You know, we have the formula. It's, it's not the only formula, but we have a formula, which is high return on capital reinvested, keep doing it for years and years. And so that screens out a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm sure if you were to go back in the best and binder study, you'd find, you know, there's not going to be top performing names among utilities. And I don't know, there's going to be some businesses there that we can, if we're building a very focused portfolio, we can we can weed out some of these subpar businesses and weak assets and and not own them. And um, and I'm and I'm sure you improve your odds a great deal by screening out that stuff. It's almost like if you were looking at uh, I don't know if this is a good analogy or not. I just thought of it. But if we were looking at say the National Football League and if we were to say what teams are going to be in the top half and which teams are going to be in the bottom half, we'd probably have a pretty good idea. <laughs> yes, there would always be exceptions, you know, the bad team that had a good year and the good team that had a bad year. But by and large, as a population, you know, from year to year, you kind of know which teams are going to be good and which ones aren't. And I think in the stock market, it's similar. We can, we know who the players are and we know who, who they aren't. The only, the only issue with that is, uh, is that the odds typically reflect that, right? So <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we had the, uh, Michael Mobosan on the podcast recently, and he he mentioned that. So maybe you want to, yeah, explore that a bit. Yeah, the odds. Uh, yeah, the odds are a big part of it, as you know. So yeah, you can even if you know the winner, if everybody already knows it, you're not going to get much return out of that. That's the art of investing: is somehow marrying those two. Yeah, and and related to that is the Kelly criterion on concentration. So can can you tell our listeners a bit about that? Yeah, in the book I wrote about the Kelly criterion, I'm not that. I don't really pay much attention to it. I think if I rewrote the book, I might leave that out. Um, but the basic idea was it's a mathematical way to sort of show that 
uh, how much you should invest as a percent of your portfolio. It originally came out of kind of gambling. How much should you bet if you know the probabilities? And the, the you know what's the how would you maximize your returns over time? What how should you weight it given certain probabilities? But for investing, of course, we don't know the probabilities. And the Kelly formula has you over overweight quite a bit. So uh, even if you were to use that as a as a framework, and I think I say this in the book, you wouldn't probably use the full Kelly. You'd probably do a half Kelly. What people do, they cut it back a little bit. Um, but the exercise, it's interesting to go through if you've never seen it, just because it shows you people are sometimes surprised at the percentage that you should be putting your portfolio, putting in, you know, what percent of your portfolio you should put in if you were, if you had this certain probability of success and this kind of payoff. And it sort of bolsters the whole idea of concentration. Yeah, we talked with uh, Daniel Chang on the podcast recently, and and he mentioned that uh, he had a hundred bagger and he saw that this is probably going to be a hundred bagger from his uh, analysis. And then he bet 0.5% of his portfolio on that. And he was, that's so stupid because then yeah. <laughs> you don't get any performance out of it. Right. But do you have any percentage thresholds for the size of each holding or any such rules in your portfolio? Yeah, I have my own rule, which is uh, I stop at 10%, and there's no necessarily, and there's no magic for that to that number. Everyone has to kind of figure out what they're willing to to do. But for me, 10% of the portfolio is as much as I would put in. But it, I mean, it can get bigger than that afterwards. That's okay. But uh, yeah, I'm not going to go more than 10% of cost. And as a practical matter, I usually kind of stop somewhere around eight and whatever, somewhere around there, and. Uh, but I do that for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, you're going to make mistakes, so you don't want to have be carried out because you put 25% of your portfolio in one name that you got wrong. And uh, and also, I just think in my in my mind that I can find I can find 10 names at least. So there's no reason to, you know, put so much in one. And also, there's a certain element that you just don't know. Like if you were rank your take your portfolio now rank them one to ten you know i'm pretty sure your number one ranked name isn't is going to be your best performer it's just not the way it works you're always surprised there's always things that come on some it might be your eighth name so if you have uh if you're overweight and then underweight you know you're hurting yourself i i kind of try to start somewhere balanced and of course over time it's going to get unbalanced but uh, that's that's my my personal way to do it yeah, it's quite often that people put most money in the in the stock that they think have the highest like upside. Yeah, but maybe the highest risk as well. So that's pretty common, I think. So say that you have nurtured a, a list of uh, fifty companies you know well that are all of high quality, and uh, you own ten of those. Um, can you explain your thought process for when you may decide to sell one of them to buy another? Yeah, that's that's always tough. Um, I like to say you know, selling is one of the toughest things to get to do well. <laughs> I don't really think anybody's a good seller because you're always going to, if you're doing this right and you're you're investing in good companies all the time, you're you're going to sell and it's going to go higher at some, you know, it's going to be higher down the road. So it's how do we make the best decisions? And uh, in the case you're talking about, where you might make some switches is. I mean, every once in a while, <laughs> the market gives you an opportunity to buy something at an insanely good price, and you have to shift to take advantage of it. 
you know, we always we'll all have another March of 2020 kind of event, and we'll have we'll have a bear market of some kind in the future where you have a massive drawdowns of names, and and something's going to be crazy. Uh, so that that would be one, but just uh, that would be one reason to switch. But otherwise, uh, I think you have to be reluctant. I mean, every once in a while you have a chance to upgrade your portfolio, and I don't mind doing that at the margin. So let's say. You know, uh, one company I have has gone up a great deal. Another one has maybe come has come back, and I know this business is kind of better than the one I own. And I've always liked it more, but I've never owned it. You know, there might be reasons that you might then make a switch, but I think you, in general, you want to be reluctant to make those kinds of changes because the name that you put in has to be quite a bit better than the name you let go because of taxes and switching costs and. And you just have to be humble about your ability to time these things. Most your odds are odds are you're probably better off sitting with what you have. But that that's a good question. It's a really tough question, and <laughs> maybe I'll write write about this in the future blog post. But it, there's no easy answer to it. We look forward to that. And maybe the the ultimate way of being a reluctant seller is the coffee can approach that you highlight. Yeah, I think this would be great for individual investors to do. Is the coffee can approach, which is, uh, you know, it came from a an old article that Robert Kirby wrote in the 1980s in the Journal of Portfolio Management. He was a money manager for a Capital Group, and he said uh, he got the idea from the old West in the U.S., where people pioneers would take their valuables and stuff them in a coffee can and then kind of bury it somewhere. And uh, he thought he got that idea because he had a client whose money he managed. And then unbeknownst to him, this this client of his, as a woman, her husband was also trading on his advice. <clears throat> but there was one difference, is that he never sold anything. And so years and years go by and the husband dies and then the wife brings his account in and, and has Kirby managed as well. And he looks at his account and he's surprised to see that he's been doing this all these years, buying his picks, but he never sells them. And what he discovers is that that account has done way better than the one he's managing. And and that he has, the result is there are some names that, you know, there's one name that's worth more than the entire account that she has. And this becomes very lumpy. And so he starts to use that as an opportunity to reflect on money management and and how we'd be better off if we weren't so active, you know. And uh, that I, I'd recommend you can find that piece on, if you just Google it. Uh, the coffee cannon portfolio by Robert Kirby, but um, that—that's the idea of it. So the idea, you know, I write about in the book is as, as an individual investor, you take ten stocks that you that you think would be great to own for the next ten years, and you create create that. Maybe you set up a separate account, you buy those ten names, and then you forget about it. And then uh, you know, ten years later, you look at it and see what you have, and in- invariably, you're going to have, you know, maybe one goes to zero. You know, maybe a couple of them go out of business, but you know, you'll maybe you'll also have one that goes up 10x. So, and the reason why you don't look is because it's kind of protects you against yourself. People see it; they want to. They're tempted always to take profits when something moves up quickly, or they get scared out of things when they draw down. They get cut in half, and they want to get out of it. And this forces you just to leave it alone and see what happens. So uh, I've seen a number of people try this experiment at different times, uh, and it's always that it's always that same kind of pattern to the portfolio. 
I know Boyer Value Management had a coffee can they recently op- opened after being <laughs> put away for 10 years. And the same thing, they had one stock that was up a whole lot and they had a couple that were, did very poorly. But overall, it was a solid market beating return. So it's just a, you know, it's an interesting way to, to defend yourself against your overactivity. And have you used it yourself? I haven't. Um, I have not. I, and maybe in a par- partial way, because I have some money that I set aside that, uh, like I have Berkshire Hathaway. I don't look at that. and It just sits there. <laughs> I haven't touched it. Um, but otherwise, uh, I don't really have a personal account anymore, because when I started my fund, I liquidated everything and put it in the fund. So I haven't had that. Had a chance to really do it, and the fund is actively managed. Fund is actively managed, and yeah, not quite coffee can. I mean, I, ideally, if I'm doing it well, most of the names I have now, I'll still have ten years from now. And are you then trimming your holdings back and forth? Um, yeah, I'm not generally a fan of trimming. Um, I usually just let them let them go. And what do you think about the ten years? Uh, like that's something. But just yeah, it's kind of arbitrary, but uh, it seems like a long enough time to have a really outsized result like that. And it's not too long that you know, if it was twenty five years, you know, that's a really long time. It's ten years seems like something people can reasonably do. Yeah, and also the lifespan of companies is now decreasing. I guess that's true too. So something related to this is also cash and. Uh, if you have a coffee can investing approach, then you just put all your money and let it compound, I guess. But if you're more active, then you might want to hold cash for the great opportunities. And you mentioned that in the book sure. as well. So what is your your view on that? Well, in general, I don't really act- actively manage to a certain cash percentage. I don't say, well, I want to always you know, keep 5% cash around. I just kind of let the cash, you know, as people say, it's residual, just kind of you work to what you want to own and you focus on the weights that you want to own them. And then cash is just kind of the rounding error there at the, at the end. Uh, I mean, it feels nice to have cash to sit on 10% cash, but it is a real drag over time. And and unless uh, most people aren't going to be able to deploy it and, and trim it back at the right times. I mean, you have to think about, What's reasonable for you to do? I mean, are you going to be able to call all the twists and turns in the market and put your cash to work at the right times and then take it out at the right time? And I think that's a very hard, hard thing to do repeatedly. So in general, I'm looking to just invest it when I have the opportunities. And when I don't have the opportunities, I'm okay letting the cash sit for a little while while I think it over. And how is your cash position now then? My cash position now is about 10%, uh, maybe a little less. And uh, part of that is because I've had recent inflow and um, I did sell one name recently so I haven't put it back to work just yet what cost you to sell that position uh, well there was a uh, a large transaction that changed the company so it was a it's a totally different business totally different company now and totally changed in a, in a big way and it may not be so bad, but it's not what I originally signed up for. So uh, you can always buy it back. Yeah, I can always buy it back. Yeah, really interesting to hear about your your thought process there. And uh, besides uh, finding great companies and having a strategy, investors also need to deal with their own mind. Um, 
And uh, I mean, everyone may have the opportunity uh, to be a great investor, but very few uh, succeed. Uh, and what uh, personal traits do you think one need to hone in order to realize 100 baggers uh, result? Well, um, you got to be curious, which gets you learning about lots of companies. Definitely have to be patient because, uh, you know, even the ones that got there fast still took a decade to do it, like in Monster Beverage, which we mentioned earlier. And what is the shortest route to a 100 bagger? I think the shortest was Franklin Resources, which did it in about four years, but that was coming off of a horrific bottom. I forget which which bear market bottom it was, if it was 08 or 73, 74, I don't remember now. But you can get extreme results like that, right, off of vicious, vicious bear market. You happen to bottom tick something. and <laughs> But you still need to hold it for four years. And Yeah, and that was, again, in my, in my study, which we talked about earlier, I took away those, uh, you know, the junior miners and the little biotech. So perhaps there's, I'm sure there's, you know, if I did a book day, maybe I have a chapter on crypto. There's stocks that their crypto has gone up hundredfold less than four years. But for the stocks that I covered in the study, that's what, that's how, that's what it took. So patience, that's a big one. And you got to have some willingness to be, um, you got to have something of a thick skin because you're going to hear constant chatter to do something. You know, the financial press, everything screams at you to make trades, you know, to buy this and you want to be part of this. And if you're going to get a hundred bag, you're going to have to hold that company through a period of time where it's not the hot thing. You know, one of the things that from doing a hundred bagger study is uh, I like to say Berkshire Hathaway, which was the top performing name in the study, still got cut in half a handful of times in its life. And there were also stretches where it went nowhere for a long period of time. There's one seven-year stretch where it went nowhere. So you can think about the enormous pressure, <laughs> you know, one year, two year, three years, and especially if you have investors. And it's like the stock has gone nowhere. Meanwhile, you know, you're seeing other stocks go up and you're seeing other things work. I mean, it takes a lot to be able to tune that out and stick to your thesis. You need to have a good uh, good set of investors in, in the fund then, right? Yeah, I mean, that when I started my fund, I asked, uh, talked to several people that I knew have, have been running funds for a long time. And uh, it was funny because I got independently the same kind of advice. and It was not to accept just anybody's money. It was to make sure that your partners buy into what you're doing and your process and They said, even if you just let in one bad partner, they can make the experience miserable. And uh, so I had an early test of that because we, we had 2020 and the fund took a big drawdown in March like the rest of the market. And uh, I didn't have anybody pull out. In fact, I had people put more money in. So I'm lucky. I have a, I have a great group of people that I uh, have in the fund. And what is your advice to help us improve our patients? Well, it's where you put your focus. Uh, focus on the company itself, not so much on the stock price. That's number one. And uh, also be careful what you allow into your consciousness in a way. Don't, you know, be mindful of what you read. Don't, uh, 
don't read the financial press. Well, what, what, this is something that, you know, everybody says, what do you read? Everybody automatically will say the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, The Economist. Why? <laughs> you know, it, uh, they're telling you what's going on now. It seems everything seems so important now. And, you know, I think you, I'm not saying you don't want to read any financial news at all, but you have to maybe compartmentalize or have a small amount of time that you dedicate to that kind of stuff. And just to be careful what you feed, feed in your mind, spend more time reading books and thinking about longer term trends and ideas. And only the best podcasts. Only the best podcasts. That's right. The most thoughtful. And yeah, this reminds me about uh, our conversation with Jake Taylor. He talked about this information onion where he at the core of the onion had like the company 10Ks and stuff. And then layer after layer. And then he ended up like social media at the end, I think. Mm -hmm. But he still had a little bit of trouble to not stay on Twitter and look for things because every now and then he found that little uh, great piece of uh, idea or anything. And you are also on Twitter. <clears throat> yeah, I ha also have that same kind of love-hate relationship with Twitter. Because <laughs> there are times when you find something on there and it's really good. Uh, but there's a lot of junk, you know, people posting, you know, what, they dr what they're drinking at the moment and, you know... <laughs> People who want to make comments all the time on politics. It's hard to find people who stick to only putting out good things or something really interesting that they find. And yeah, it can be a real sinkhole because you can be on there and it's like junk food. And suddenly you realize you spent 40 minutes on Twitter, you know, like what happened? <laughs> <laughs> and what did I just waste my time on? So yeah, that's a love-hate relationship. It takes some, takes some management to, uh, you know, limit the amount of time you're on it and be very specific about why you're why you're on it what you're looking for do you have specific times of the day where you check it or yeah i try to do it kind of just in the morning i'll go on uh but otherwise um yeah i'll tweet something whenever i happen to find something that i think is really interesting it could be anytime i, I don't tweet as much as i as i used to i used to do it multiple times a day Now I'm okay if I go a few days without doing anything. It's okay. I don't worry about it. You know? But is it similar there that you have honed like a, a, a fan base, so to speak, where you have uh, yeah. and you get thoughtful responses and so on? That's right. Yep. And you can use the mute button. I'm a liberal user of the mute button, <laughs> <laughs> so you can you can strain out certain things and yeah, and uh, also resist the uh, urge to you know get involved in these back and forths and debates and things. You know, somebody says something I don't agree with, I don't feel like I have to go out there and correct them. People are free to say what they want. And uh, that helps limit the amount of time you spend. I mean, what what good is it to go around arguing with people about whatever? You stay away from the meme stocks and Tesla and so on, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So in the book you write that you have no attachment to ideas and no problem changing your mind, for example. So it's it's clear that you are aware of confirmation bias, for example. Uh, but uh, what would which would you say are your most common biases? Well, there are good biases and bad biases. Um, I have a bias towards finding companies that are making a profit and generate cash flow and returns and all the things I can look at. Which you know you're smiling and I know, but it also means that you know I'm going to miss some I'm going to miss some things. I'm going to miss some really good businesses that aren't showing profits, but that will someday in the future. And you have to be okay with that. So, uh, you know, 
I don't know, I'm trying to think of an example, but uh, I don't know, something like Wix.com, which actually I use for my website. It's a great service. You know, maybe it is a great stop, but it doesn't have the kind of characteristics necessarily that I'm looking for, so I'm, I'll probably miss it. Maybe I'll own it five years from now when it's finally, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but you have to be okay when you create filters. You have to be okay missing things. I mean, there are other biases that help, that can help and hurt. I have this bias for insider ownership and skin in the game. But obviously, there are great companies where that where their skin in the game has been pretty light, or insider ownership is small, and companies have done very well. And I'm gonna I'm gonna miss those. I have other biases. I mean, probably a common bias among investors of my type would be a bias against the extractive industries. You know, you're not gonna get involved with miners or oil and gas or uranium. And so that means you're going to miss those. There's going to be times when this looks like it's going to be a fantastic uranium bull market and you're going to miss it because you're not involved in those kinds of business. So that's another bias. Yeah, I was listening to um, Vishal Kandelwal's podcast, 1% Show. I don't know if you heard it. Mm-mm. No, it's uh, fairly new, but I think <laughs> it's very good. Uh, Barry Ritholtz was, was there and uh, he said that there's more to learn from failure than from success. So since you write in the book uh, about both hindsight bias and survivorship among the winners of the, like the hundred baggers are the winners, of course. So uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, on failure versus success stories. Yeah. I, <clears throat> you can learn from failures as well, of course, and you wouldn't necessarily exclusive, you know, exclusively do one or the other. Um, I think people sometimes can overdo the learning from failures because it sounds smart. Oh, let's learn from from failures. But uh, I think you also learn from successes. So people have done it very well over a long period of time. I give you a model of how to do it. So I, I think it's like having two feet, left feet, right foot. You need to look at both. With 100-baggers, um, you know, I thought a lot about that the survivorship bias and uh, it's it's more of like a point of logic with 100 baggers like what does it take to be 100x well you got to multiply your stock on at least 100 times okay you have to that has to happen <laughs> and then there's lots of ways to get there but that's the first little piece of truth and then you kind of back into it okay well how do you do that well one way is you have high returns on capital and reinvest for a lot of period of years that gets you there so then, you know, you can kind of keep reverse engineering further low, you know, down as we've done. So what are the components of that? And we've talked about a number of them, growth, sales growth, the insiders, whatever, all, all the different things we've talked about. So it's kind of a logical progression. The failure is almost implied. So it's like, well, what companies didn't do that? You know, the companies that don't have high returns on capital, aren't able to reinvest. And so you get you get the failures in there. Now, there may be companies that, you know, for 20 years cruise along and then tank, and that, that can certainly happen. And we've lots of examples of businesses go obsolete. Uh, and it's very useful to understand those. I think understanding failure that comes after success is really an interesting place to study rather than just say failure generally. So let's talk about a company that was very successful and then lost it. You know, what happened to Kodak and Xerox? What happened in Nokia? Why did they make that mistake? Those are the kinds of failures that interest me the most. I have a portfolio of companies that have all been successful. Now I'm particularly interested in, well, what's going to mess it up? And how will I be able to tell when they make that you know, critical error or when they slip from the 
success as to becoming one of those case studies people will look back in the future. Yeah, were there many of the 365 stocks in your study of 100 burgers that actually went out of business after? Not that many. Um, there are some that just don't exist because they were acquired. Um, but other than there were some very high profile ones. I mentioned Xerox, Kodak, you know, newspaper stocks will come to mind. Um, you know, Valiant was a hundred bagger. Valiant got there very quickly. Uh, I think it's also it's in the top 10 in terms of length of time. I think it became a hundred bagger in under five years, if memory serves, something like that. But of course, <laughs> It became a high-profile failure. So uh, there weren't that many, but there were some. So, so Chris, after uh, having discussed a lot of uh, topics and after also reading your, your book, what uh, else do you recommend us to read to improve our odds of being able to find and hold on to these 100 baggers? Well, you know, I always like uh, stuff that's not related to finance at all. I like, uh, I like books that kind of deal with uh, critical thinking skills. So, you know, I wrote my last book was called How Do You Know? And it was about general semantics, which is kind of a little, its own little discipline. And it's about uh, our the way we use our language and symbols and <clears throat> how that influences our thinking, whether it matches up with what we're actually trying to describe. Uh, so I think something like that can be helpful because it helps pierce, helps you separate kind of the nonsense and people when they talk about things that are very abstract, uh, you know, you don't you don't uh, have to take it as seriously. I don't know if, that's, if I'm making any sense. It's kind of a hard thing to to describe or talk about, but there are lots of little tricks and tools. You know, you talk about Munger's mental mental models. I like uh, I think general semantics is one of those good little ment- mental models. And so I wrote about that in my last book. How do you know? And uh, I think that kind of stuff helps you tune out the noise. Uh, and of course, I you know you have all these books behind me. I, I read a lot of philosophy, which I think is uh, you know I enjoy just thinking about some of these bigger picture issues, and that can help you give you some perspective on your investing. It seems like on the philosophy side, it, I'm a bit impressed that you that you read that because typically. Isn't that, uh, I mean, normal that the younger people read philosophy and then life happens more or less? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chris is still young. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, um, I guess it depends on which philosophers you're reading. But to me, it's almost like a, it's a lifetime thing. It's almost, you know, you never really get to the bottom of it. You know, it's always different ways to think about things, different models. There's always different questions. So, um, yeah, it never really gets old. And are you writing something, uh, a new book now, for example? Yes. uh, I have a book that uh, it's being serialized in a publication called Etcetera, which is published by the Institute of General Semantics. And um, it's another attempt to try to explain some of these tools of general semantics sim- more simply doesn't really have to do with investing specifically, although it was inspired by stuff that I've done. That's just something I kind of do a little bit on the side. You know, I've read a lot of Alfred Krasibsky's stuff and he's the guy who created the discipline of general semantics. And, uh, 
yeah, so that's that's one thing that I've done. But I would like at some point I'd like to do a, a kind of a uh, write about my experience with Woodlock House, but I don't want to do that until I'm f- much further along. That's something maybe ten years looking back. Uh, there's always a possibility of doing up some kind of update on hundred baggers. That would be a lot of work, but I think uh, I would do it definitely do it differently. There's some things I've learned since we've talked about some of them that I'd emphasize more, de-emphasize certain other things, and uh, and now that I know more, like back then I didn't know about these companies in Sweden that we talked about. It'd be nice to have to try to push to have some more international coverage on some of these names. In my book, I, I explicitly said I'm only going to focus on U.S. markets, but I found some interesting things that that I would that probably deserve a chapter. You know, the, these serial compounders in Sweden, and there's some other interesting ones in the U.K. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do next, book-wise. Lots of interesting material coming up. I can hear that. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, Chris Mayer. For people who want to buy your book or follow you, where can they find you? Yeah, all my books are available on Amazon and uh, I'm on Twitter. So it's Chris W-M-A-Y-E-R. You can find me there. And I write an occasional blog at uh, Woodlock House Family Capital. If you Google that, it'll come right up. So that's how you can follow me. And yeah, thank you much for having you guys. It's a very good conversation thoughtful conversation appreciate the questions and yeah thank you for having me thank you so much thank you for listening to investing by the books a podcast by radai you can follow us on twitter at ib underscore radai and email us at ib.podcast at radai.se to improve the podcast we really appreciate your feedback so please rate and review us Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.sc. For the sound engineering and editing of this podcast, we thank Gustav Tesch. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing. <laughs>